Hi, Aurora James here, founder of Brother Valleys and your host for In Progress Season 2. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Don't forget to go back and check out everything you missed along the way. But for now, we are talking about pulling apart and examining the various elements of our personal journeys and asking questions about how we can keep moving forward in the way that feels truest to our authentic selves. Because the thing is, no matter how many successes and failures we stack up, we're always, always a work in progress. Thank you guys so much for joining us for the final episode of season two of In Progress. It has been a wild ride. We have been laughing. We have been crying. We've been feeling all the feels truly unpacking together. This has been made possible by Girlboss and, of course, our very favorite luggage brand, Toomey. With season two in particular, we had the opportunity to look backwards in order to better see our path forwards. That means digging deep into our origin stories, where we come from, the people and experiences that shaped us, and how this all has everything to do with where we are today and where we're headed in the future. I am so thrilled to jump into conversation with our guest, whose highly unconventional upbringing eventually led her to become an envelope-pushing entrepreneur in the fitness industry. Sadie Lincoln, founder of Bar 3, literally grew up off the grid in a counterculture, female-led community. And on this episode, Sadie and I talk about how rebelling against her rebel roots set her on a path she never expected to travel. Stay tuned. Hi, Sadie. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, joining me today on the In Progress podcast. My pleasure. Um, I'm super happy to have you here today. I think um, you might know already, but In Progress is really delving into origin stories and the whole idea of sort of how things started for us can end up coming full circle into our lives and our successes um, later on. And I think I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit about where you came from and how it started. Where were you born? I was born in Arroyo Seco, New Mexico, which is outside of Taos, New Mexico. Yesterday was my birthday, so oh, 47 yay. years ago. Yeah, 47 years young. Yeah, and I always call my mom on my birthday and wish her a happy birthday because I've heard my birth story so many times. I was born in a little adobe without electricity at home. Oh, wow. And my mom, like we joke, because I think she's super wimpy, so I just can't even believe she did it. And when I had my own children, I was sure I was gonna, going to have them naturally without any drugs and no no can do. <laughs> <laughs> so you have like a whole different level of appreciation for her now. Totally. Oh it's gosh. so, I mean, it's amazing what she did and how brave she was. But yeah, that's where I started. <laughs> so was that like her thing where she was like, I want to have a natural birth or did it just sort of happen? It was a conscious choice. Um, my mom at the time... Everything they, my mom and her best friends met in the late 60s, and they were, I guess, part of the counterculture movement, although they don't like to identify as a hippie or in a commune or they weren't religious. There was basically five women that band together um, as just dear friends, and 
they were, like many people in that generation, experimenting with a new way of living. And for them, it was living intuitively and close to nature and uber present in, in present moment awareness. And part of that was living pretty simply. And um, my mom, for example, chose to have me without my dad. My dad, they weren't married. Um, I always, I, you know, I've asked her, was I an accident? She's, she always says, you were meant to be, which means I was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, the, the, the story goes, he rode his horse, my dad, into their camp, oh, like wow. basically impregnated my mother and oh, rode wow. his horse away. Yeah. <laughs> really? Um, oh yeah. my gosh. Wait. Okay. So, th- so this was five women living on a camp together. Yeah. For a while, they lived in Northern California on a ranch and they had Just a little- Just the five of them? Well, they were kind of the main – there was actually a core group of them. It was actually four at the time, but then other people came into the circle kind of in and out. But they were sort of the epicenter. And they had just a pretty primitive, like, building. But they – my mom said at night each of them had a mattress out in the – in the country, in the forest, and that was their bed, their bedroom. So when the evening came, they would all kind of walk out to their own little spots, and my mom had a mattress with a little kerosene lamp and pillows and two sleeping bags, and she'd read herself to sleep and then get up in the morning, and they'd all gather around the campfire and um, sit around the fire. And um, they what drew them together was – well, I don't even – some of it's just amazing kind of magic and chemistry. But they also had a, a similar intellect and curiosity about life and specifically studying Carl Jung and dream work. And so they just started this thing where they'd sit around the campfire in the morning and investigate their dreams and analyze their dreams. And I call them my aunties because they all had kids. They were all single moms and they ended up raising us together. So I've – we still are a family. Um, and all these years later, we gather in circle. And um, Carl Jung studied dreams and the symbols of dreams and how you can uh, interpret those symbols of dreams to deepen self-awareness. Okay. So this is your mom and your aunties. Mm-hmm. You were born there. And then what happened? There were other children, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are other children. And we all lived in various configurations. We didn't all live together all the time. But there was usually at least one roommate, like my mom and Lois for a while and her kids. And then my mom and Liz and Sophia lived together. They kind of – we lived in a lot of rentals we didn't own. Um, And we ended up all moving to Eugene, Oregon. And that's where I grew up for the rest of my um, childhood until I was 18. And – in Eugene, um, again, we all kind of lived near each other in different homes. And my mom ended up um, meeting Bill, who was my stepfather for many years. They're divorced now. But she got married for the first time when I was, I think, 16. Um, so, you know, men kind of came in and out of the picture, and they were an important part of our family. But the true nucleus and, like, the stability in my life has been around women. Right. Um, a group of women who mothered me, basically. My question is, like, when you were younger, did you feel like your situation was normal? Did you have any context for it being slightly different? Did you um, 
did you go to school at all, like a traditional school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Uh, So it was my normal. Like, for example, I didn't feel like I was missing a dad. Right. I never – it just – it was my normal. And so from that point of view, yes. But I was a child of the 80s by this time. And I I admired traditional families and a mother and a father and a normal home with a picket fence and a nice car. And, um, you know, I wanted things. I wanted – to be, you know, different than these little hippie, funky homes we lived in with the car that broke down in front of the school and the mom with the Birkenstocks before they were cool and growing weed before it was legal and, <laughs> you know, all the things making my – they like we went to a um, – for a couple of years, we went to Eugene Montessori School. And they all were about education. That's actually why we moved from Taos to Eugene was because they wanted better school system. They're definitely all very much about education. Right. And um, I started off at Eugene Montessori and there was a uniform, but my mom, instead of buying the polyester uniform, she sewed me a denim version of it. And it was like just different enough that it made me feel ridiculous, you know? And I just longed for the polyester, you know, even though now looking back, I'm like, that was pretty badass. Like that was a cute (laughs) little jumper, you know? (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I have to say is on this podcast, a lot of the other women that I've been talking to and myself included, it's like this whole narrative of like having this very different, um, childhood and at the time just like loathing it it's like you love your parents like you know I love my mom you loved your mom but it you know it's like I just like wanted rules I wanted boundaries and it sounds like you kind Mm -hmm. of had a little bit of that same thing and when you have like an untraditional childhood it sometimes is difficult to then assimilate into traditional experiences like high school which I bombed at, and I'm wondering, like, how that move affected you to then go from, like, this very unorthodox, like, outside, you know, living, super chill, female, foundational experience to then being, like, in high school. Yeah. um, I did crave rules and structure, and if anything, I'm – I'm basically the oldest of the siblings. There's Lark, too, who's eight years older than me. But of our closer siblings in age, I'm the oldest. And I'm also, like, we joke now that I was the most uptight. Like, I wanted everybody to follow the rules and get their shit together, you know? Yeah. And by the time I – and we went to – alternative schooling, basically. I did. I went to Magnet Arts, which is a beautiful school, and I was very confident there, and I I learned to express myself, which has really, I think, helped me throughout my entire life. But when I hit middle school, I didn't know the basics, and I fell short right away in spelling, math, I mean, all the basics. Yeah, because how would you have known any of that stuff? If I would have been interested in it, I would have learned it. But I I had total freedom of choice. And so I went towards like dance and pottery and, you know, singing and things that I thought were more fun. Um, And as kids uh, do. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm thankful for that experience. But it also I had so much I had very low self esteem academically. And it started in my middle school, and my middle school was slightly alternative as well in that there were no grades. So I got through middle school fine, and then I hit high school. Now we're now we're for the first time in my life, I'm being graded. Mm-hmm. And I suffered from low self-esteem, and so I just stopped trying. 
And I barely got through high school grades-wise. I had a fantastic time. I survived it just by being yeah. social and having fun. Right. Um, but I, I didn't even really try. Uh, right. I didn't take the SATs at the end of, you know, I was very right brain. I was always daydreaming during class and imagining myself somewhere else. Right. And so you knew already that you didn't, university or college wasn't going to be a thing that you wanted to do. Yeah, I didn't really think about it. It's so crazy because my daughter's 15, my son is 13, and it's kids are, I mean, my kids are so different than me and that they're already thinking about college. Um, and I, it wasn't even really on my radar. Uh, and and what's interesting is my mom and aunties didn't expect that of me either. They didn't expect me to get good grades. They they applauded me and saw me and believed in me just as I was. And I mean... But why didn't they expect you to get good grades? Because they didn't value what was being graded in school? They... I would say they didn't value external measures of success. Mm -hmm. They valued intellectual curiosity. Right. For sure. Um, And to have my own point of view. But I was taught to look inside for answers and to value that as my measure of success. And in fact, they were so rebellious that they're like, screw grades. What do they mean anyways? Right. You know? So I had that rebellious backdrop in addition to low self-esteem, that kind of, you know, informed my um, how I succeeded in high school. You know, it's really funny, just side note, that my high school had me, I was in the Hall of Fame, which I think is hysterical because I was the least likely to succeed. Oh, like you mean now. Yeah, like in That's recent years, like two years ago, I went That's and funny. I was just, I'm like, never did I imagine myself on this stage. That's funny. I think my <laughs> high school definitely has not acknowledged my existence. My university tweeted me and they're like, Ryerson grad, Aurora James did it on. I was like, correction, I actually did not graduate. I got kicked out. But if you guys are willing to offer me an honorary degree, I am here. (laughs) Crickets. (laughs) Good for you. So at least you are in the Hall of Fame. That's amazing. Did you end up going to school later on or no? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went to Los Angeles and I got to know my father. Oh, wow. So he got off the horse and came down to your level, met you. Yes. And he had done that several times. The first time I remember meeting him, I was five years old. And then I met him again, like, when I was eight. Because you had a relationship po- with him to some degree. I, I did. But okay. he I never called him dad. Okay. I called him Stephen. And he passed away. Um, okay. But he – so I went to L.A. I got to know him. I enrolled in Santa Monica City College. And whew, that was a, like, really awkward, lonely, sad time in my life. But really amazing. What changed in you that you were suddenly like, this is what I want to do, and uh, this is a system that I want to uh, ingratiate myself into? I think being with my dad helped. You know, father energy is a little more externally motivated in the world. And mm-hmm. I did, looking back, I think I did want him, want him to approve of me and like me, <laughs> you know. And he was super excited to get me enrolled in school and really uber smart um, and intellectual as well. He also, I wanted, I thought I wanted to be an actress, which is a joke because I didn't really want to act. As soon as I took acting school, I was like, ugh. Like, um, but the idea of acting was interesting to me. And so he supported me in that. And um, and then City College was cool because I was so uncomfortable 
and I wasn't social anymore. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have security. So I had to just go it alone. And I was kind of forced to hunker down and learn to study and show up that way. And I toured UCLA um, with my dad, and I loved it. And I just had it in my head, I'm going to get into this school. And I did. How how old were you? I was 18. At that point. Okay, wow. Yeah. So you were young. You didn't, like, miss a beat. No. Yeah. I was young and naively confident. Okay, yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. I was. I mean, I was so fish out of water in L.A., like, ridiculously. Yeah, because it's like, how did you end up at UCLA if, like, the grades maybe weren't so amazing in high school? Well, back then, going to community college, if you did decent in community college, it was almost guaranteed you could transfer in to Uh, a good school. What a great path, right? For a kid like me, like I talk about that a lot on various stages um, yeah. to so, to get the message out to other kids who are feel shameful for not going to a four year right away because, you know, there are creative ways to get into a beautiful like you know big name school. You just have to be patient and creative. Right. Hmm. Okay. Cool. So then after UCLA, what did you do? I ended up going to College of William and Mary to get my uh, master's um, in higher ed administration. I, I was um, at UCLA. I started working at the UCLA Recreation Center, and I was teaching group exercise, and that was sort of my extracurricular activity. And I ended up helping with the instructor training program. And I went to the College of William and Mary and, and got their instructor training program going for college students, basically. And I thought that's what I was going to do for a living, was run college rec programs. Mm-hmm. And when did you realize that wasn't what was going to be happening? And when I say that's what I thought I was going to do, that's sort of what guided me. But I, I was never very attached to a, a career or ambitious that way. Right. I was always, and I still am, very fluid, like, that's what ins- – I love teaching, and so I just went for it, you know. Right. Um, so after grad school, I, again, fluidly – well, I followed a boy to Charlotte, North Carolina, and that didn't work out. Um, and so I ended up moving to San Francisco because I thought it was a cool city and found a job there at um, 24-Hour Fitness. Okay. And – that's where my I was basically groomed professionally for the next 11 years. So you worked at 24-Hour Fitness for 11 years? Yeah, at the headquarters. And for many of those years, for the founder and CEO, Mark Mastrov. Got it. And then was it from there that you – like what was the moment when you birthed mentally at least bar three? There's a couple different moments. But number one – I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So it was crazy to me that I stayed at bar- at 24 Fitness for so long. But Mark also has an entrepreneurial spirit. So he kept giving me new projects like every one to two years. So I was always diving into something new. And in the back of my head, I was always thinking, this is not my company. This is not where I want to be. Yeah. You know, I want to do my own thing. And um, and my husband ended up working at 24 Fitness for five of those years. And we had some a pilot phase where we were actually working on various projects together and we realized we were a really good team that way. And so we started to dream up our own business and it was a fluid process and all these different data points for me of being disenchanted with fitness personally and having shame around fitness and feeling like I wasn't succeeding. 
and um, and not really happy in my own body, even though I was working out a lot and doing the diets and doing all the things we were told to do to be fit and healthy. And so that was kind of the thing. And then I was getting all this data in about how many people were leaving gyms nationwide, not just 24 Fitness, but all gyms. Nobody was staying. And in fact, as fitness was booming, our collective health was on the decline rapidly. And body image issues, eating disorders, anxiety, obesity, lifestyle diseases were all on the rise as fitness was booming. And Chris and I, as problem solvers, just kept looking inside and saying, well, why isn't this working for us? If it, It's not working for so many people, but why isn't it working for us? And right. that's how Bar 3 was born. We basically put together a, a business plan around how we would shape a new way to define what success in fitness meant um, that wasn't about fitness formulas anymore it, or external measures of success. It wasn't about getting to that after picture. You know, that's how we sold fitness was the before and after. Right. And we found that so shaming. Like, if if I need to be something else, I'm inherent in that message is I'm broken, I'm not whole, I'm not worthy as I am. I need to do this fitness service and product to become attractive, worthy, successful. And so we turned that on the head and said, what if we created exercise program that completely let go of the results in the future and instead we exercise to be present and alive in our bodies just as they are? For the people who don't know who are listening to the podcast, can you kind of also give me like a 30-second synopsis of like what to expect when you walk into a Bar 3 class? Well, first of all, what the class is because that's the epicenter of – what you'll experience and why you're going and paying. Um, the class is a full body balanced workout, and we combine strength conditioning, cardio, and mindfulness. And I would say what I love the most about Bar 3 is that we value relationships just as much as we do exercise. We are living in a chronically lonely society right now. And we all feel so pulled apart from each other. And so what you can expect when you walk into a studio is that your front desk person and the woman or man or whoever they are in childcare taking care of the children, they are equally trained and equally passionate about your health and well-being. And like it's not like we're all going to hug and like kumbaya, but there's just this unspoken rule that when you're at bar three, you're going to be supported. Okay, I'd say this is a pretty good spot to take a breather from the conversation and let you know about our friends at Toomey. You've heard me talk about them before on this show because, duh, they helped us make this new season of the podcast possible. And if you haven't taken the time to check them out online, I really hope you do. The thing is, Toomey has always been known for timeless and elegant luggage, but they also make handbags that are just as sophisticated. They have plenty of luxurious leather and nylon designs that make it so easy for you to go about your day and travel without any of the fuss. Simply put, Toomey helps you get where you're going so you can live your life in an uncomplicated way. And that means you have more time to do the things you want to do. Toomey's luggage, briefcases, and handbags combine style, function, and craftsmanship. So you can count on Toomey to withstand the trends. To find out more about how Toomey is perfecting the journey, just go to Toomey.com. There you'll be able to see some of my favorite luggage and hopefully find your own. Again, that's Toomey.com, T-U-M-I.com. Can you tell me a little bit about Bar 3 and how specifically like your childhood and like growing up with your mom and growing up with your aunties like really informed the creation of that? 
program? You know, I'm so present with this. I've been thinking about it so much. I think it's my age, but just honoring my aunties and the way I was raised and what I didn't realize I did, but I have done it, is Bar 3 is a tribute to these women. It really is. It's my way of thanking them. We unconsciously, but now it's a conscious decision. But in the very beginning, I started Bar 3 in Circle, and we still sit in Circle to this day. So when you come to Bar 3 and you become a team member, we sit in a circle. And it's the same rules as I grew up in. Everybody's seen and heard. Everybody matters. There is no guru. I am not the guru of this company. I hold space for people to be seen and heard. I think it's really interesting because earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned that you've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I'm wondering how that showed itself maybe in other ways when you were growing up. Like, did you have a lemonade stand? Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, from my earliest memories, I mean, one of my earliest jobs, our friend Steve Liebau, a family friend, had a sprout company, and I figured out how to label his sprout containers more efficiently. And I think I was eight years old. So he would bring me these giant. Excuse me. I think that these labels, (laughs) was your mom like, uh, what? Like, what? She didn't really, uh, that's the other thing, is my mom to this day doesn't like, say, oh, I'm so proud of you. Good job. She's just like, did you have a dream last night? How are the kids? Are you sleeping? Like, um, so yeah, sprout container labeling. Um, I I remember when I was in third grade, my friend Rachel and I dreamt up this business, which we never did. I dreamt up a lot of business ideas that I never did, but we were going to be clowns for birthday parties or um, I, I sent a letter to Brooke Shields when I was 11, mm-hmm. and I, I I pitched to her that she could come with her film crew to the Pacific Northwest, and I would show her a day in the life of a kid in the Pacific Northwest. Like, oh, wow. I always had these, like, I, dreams of creating and starting things. And it's so interesting how your parents can sort of, like, either really lean into that or in some ways, like – dissuade you from that. I remember when the first person at my high school ever dropped out, I was like, oh, wow, she has so much free time now. I'm going to see if I can hire her to mow the lawn for half of what (laughs) I'm getting paid to mow the lawn. And that's what I did. And I I remember my mom being like, why is Aaron mowing the lawn? And I was like, because Aaron has a better rate than I do, you know? And my mom was like, she looked at me for a second and she was like, oh, that's really smart. And I was like, thanks, you know? And in that moment, I was like, oh, okay, like this is actually something. But then there's other times too where you start doing something and maybe people like aren't actually like that supportive of it. And and I think, you know, it's really interesting because if we look in our history – we see signs of our own entrepreneurial self, especially as a child, before we are like learned how to be scared of failing, you know, and I think that um, that happens with a lot of women, you know, we just end up too afraid to actually follow the things that we know we want to do the most. So I'm wondering like how you, were you ever scared when you started Bar 3? Were you worried? Did you think you were going to fail? Or were you always just like hyper confident and like dreaming it into fruition? I would say the latter, dreaming it into fruition is a perfect way to put it. Wow. That's major. Yeah. But I for sure fail forward. Of course. Well, we're failing upwards. 100%. And that's the other thing with the positive of being brought up with a family who celebrated mediocrity is like, I wasn't expected to succeed. So why not fail? Like, 
or why not succeed? Like it was just kind of neutral. And um, I'm also to this day not afraid to say when I mess up quickly and loudly and whole, and be fully accountable for it because that's what we did in Circle growing up. Like you had to own your shit. Like if you did something that wasn't cool, like it was really important to own it. And and we weren't judged by it, but we observed it and talked about it. And that is so important. I've had to teach that again to myself as an adult growing a company because for a while there, I put myself in that category of trying to be perfect for everybody else. And especially when I got so much attention for being a female CEO, I started to buy into that ideal and by accident started – I think I created a culture of where people were afraid to fail. We were all afraid to, afraid to fail together. And it wasn't until I had a major awareness shakeup about my own vulnerabilities and low points as a leader and then coming out with that in front of my whole team and saying, hey, guys, I'm not doing a good job here. You know, I hear you. There's some things that I really need to work on. And this is where I'm falling short. And this is how I'm going to, this is what I learned from that. And this is how I'm going to get better. And then I literally put myself on a, on a self-improvement plan and I measured it with KPIs and I presented it to my whole headquarters for three months. Okay, 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 time out, time out, time out. Because I feel like for me as, you know, the CEO of my own company, I can definitely like acknowledge when I'm messing up and I mess up all the time and everybody knows and I'm very candid about it. But when I mess up, I'm like, oh my God, you guys, like I just bombed this. I don't like have a whole plan ready where I'm like, I bombed it and this is how I'm fixing it and now we're going to measure how I'm fixing it. So like how did you do that? Where did that come from? I like... Because that's mind-blowing to me. Like, I cannot I cannot identify with that at all. I had to. But how? I had to for my own confidence. It was, like, the biggest, scariest thing. I had to sit in the hot seat in front of my whole company and be raw because there was a culture shakeup and there were women that banned against me. Like, what was happening? Because this is the other thing. And, you know, people have, like, a fear. Like, I, I'll, be, I'll be fully candid. I have, like, a, this terrifying fear because I'm very, like, you know, open with everything. I'm very raw. I talk about, like, I cry in the office all the time. I talk about, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. when, my, when my boyfriend left, I, like, talked about that. I talk about, like, all kind, everybody knows, you know, <laughs> like, all of my stuff. And I have these, like debilitating fears that one day someone's going to be like, well, Aurora, like, said this one day and, like, totally take something out of context and then I'm going to be, like, slammed through, like, you know, New York Magazine because I, like, you know, yeah. well, drank when that at happens, 5 p.m. or something. Yeah. When that happens, just give me a ring and you and I'll mentor you. <laughs> well, when that <laughs> happens, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to be like, yeah, guys, like I did drink at 5 p.m. that day. And I did say this thing because that's how I felt at that time. Yeah. Because and I I'm feel like perfect. when you're your authentic self, you yeah. can talk through the things that happened and why they happened because you're figuring it out. And I guess that's what I'm trying to understand was like when you were going through this stuff and you were figuring it out, how did you already have it figured out simultaneously. Oh, I didn't already have it figured out. It I am figuring it out right as we speak. Like it is a practice, right? Um and 
I did have specific things based on feedback that I needed to work on. And, you know, and and part and it's without going it's too much of a long story, although it's a great one. But um I one one aha I had is no one can fire me. I'm the CEO and sole owner along with my husband of this whole company. We don't have a board of directors, we don't have private equity, we own this company. Like it is my job to fire myself. Like if I'm not cutting it, I we franchise. I have 170 studios now with badass, badass women who believe in Bar 3 and who are in so many ways better than me. And I am – my job is to show up for all those women and all those clients and all those instructors and all those team members who have invested their resources, their energy, and passion towards the same aligned vision as I have. And so I just feel so – like, it's my job to take this seriously. I mean, quite and, literally, yeah. And yeah, and quite literally. And so it wasn't – I didn't do it in a vacuum. I have a, a, I have an entrepreneur support group. They're, they all own their own companies, and we peer-to-peer coach each other. It's through EO, which is an entrepreneur organization. It's a wonderful platform for – people scaling their businesses to get support. So they all help me. I hired a personal coach. I have an Enneagram expert who helps me with self-discovery. I have – and then my I, I my, my other board of directors is my mom and my aunties. We sit in circle and I'll talk about business and they support me. Like I have – I have leaned into so many tools including astrology, um, like – you know, anything that helps me be self-aware as a leader, I lean into. Can we go back to your mom and your aunties for a second and, like, that kind of circle? I'm wondering, like, when you were at UCLA, for example, like, were you still doing that? Was something that you ta- was that something that you talked about? Or was, was there ever a point when you were like, oh, I maybe need to, like, dim the switch a little bit on this part of who I am in order to feel um, – you know, like I fit in at UCLA, for example? Oh, yeah. I never hid how I grew up, but I certainly didn't celebrate it for many years because I felt like it was so weird and different and people would misinterpret it um, or not really understand it. And I was also differentiating. You know, I wanted to be my own person in the world and figure it, it out my kind of my own way. But I would say that I always pulled elements of it into my friendship circles. So if we're sitting around, you know, drinking a beer in college, I would always, like, want to ask a deep question and have everybody answer it because it was always a way more fun conversation. Oh, my gosh. Wait. Do you remember any of those questions? Oh, God. I mean, well, they, you know, in college, it was probably more juicy stuff. Like, when did you first have sex and stuff like I that? I mean, that's still juicy now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the cool stuff. Or, like, or like, when did you – oh, like, um, one of my favorite questions to this day is, when were you bullied? Because we all were. And what did you learn from that experience? What was it like? You know? Did you ever feel outside and like an outsider in an environment where you used to be the insider? Um, you know, questions like that. And that's the sort of thing that you guys talked about when you were little with your your mom and your aunties. You guys would like talk through some of those feelings as a child. Yeah, 
we were allowed to cry in circle. We were allowed to, to, to like, pat our own backs and talk about our successes. So vulnerability was kind of something that was always um, embraced. Absolutely. So yeah. now, as a CEO, do you feel like, because vulnerability was cherished for you as a child, do you think it's made it easier for you to bring vulnerability into your current life and practice in the office? It's all I know. It's who I am. I am naturally this, like, it's not work for me to be vulnerable. If anything, I need to learn that not everybody was raised that way. And I am self-aware that I'm I'm triggering the people. Very few people were raised that way. Right, exactly. I'm a minority. Um, what would you say overall is the biggest impact or lesson that you use every day now that your mom and your aunties gave to you? To enjoy the in-between moments. Like, just like having a cup of soup. I just had a cup of soup with my godmother who's... Um, dying she's actively dying she's in hospice and um and she just said Sadie this cup of soup is so good like when you're dying you lose your appetite and like to have my appetite right now and to have this cup of soup with you is so good this is so good and to me that's it like that moment of stirring the oatmeal in the kitchen in the in-between with my kids getting ready for school the moment like after the meeting when we're walking in the hallway and someone says something hysterical that makes us all laugh or, you know, the cute dog that someone brings to work that day or like just the little, my parent, my mom and aunties love the little simple in-between moments and the beauty in that, you know, the fact that we started so simply in these, and they still live so simple in this home without electricity. Um, So I think that is what, you know, the greatest gift that they've given me for sure. Why do you think it's so important for people to reflect on their own origin stories when they're trying to figure out their life's path? It's where we begin. It's not who we are, but it's where we begin. And it sounds cliche, but to me, origin is like a seed in the earth. And like, it helps keep you literally grounded in and it's not always good. My my story sounds so fairy tale, but there's a dark side. We moved 13 times by the time I was eight. There was no structure. I didn't have stability. You know, I saw things I maybe shouldn't have seen. Like, there was a lot of shakeup too. And but even with that, just observing it and knowing that that's mine. That's my story. Those are my roots. Do you feel like those parts of your origin story, like all of those dark, because I know for me, like, you know, I had a lot of really dark parts of my childhood and I feel like it was only through, you know, that darkness that I was able to find the lightness that I have now. And, you know, some of that tough stuff was like what made me then want to go on and help other people and like work with other women who don't have some of the privileges that I have. Like, do you feel like some of that, you know, not amazing things that, you know, happened as a, as a child is part of like what propels you now? 100%. I love that you just said that. Um, the dark, the dark side is as much purposeful as the happy side. Yeah, the I dark completely agree. Equal purpose. It's There's purpose in those dark moments. And, and it's, 
if we can lean into that and remember that in the middle when you're just like, this sucks, to remember there's purpose in this, even though you don't know what it is, that's what leads to the light side. That's what led to me investigating myself and becoming a better leader and putting together a plan to be a better leader. Like, I I went all the way into the dark. I, I looked at myself, and I felt what it felt like to be fall short in front of so many people. I think, like, for me, one of the things that was so interesting when I talked to, like, other young women um, – And I think maybe it's been helpful for them along the way. It's like, you know, for me, for example, like I am a victim of abuse, right? And for for me, the attitude I took on about it was I was like, okay, well, if the statistics say that it's one in three, I'm at least happy that I could be that one to like save two other women out there because I know that I can handle it. And I'm really lucky that as a child, I processed it in that way. But I think that there's a lot of women who when they go through like dark stuff in their childhood, it leads them to feeling like they're not worthy later on. And I think that's where we also start birthing things like imposter syndrome You know, I'm just curious, like, how you are able to also, like, take some of those dark moments and say, like, this isn't about me, actually. I am still great. Or could you? For a while, were you like, wow, like, I I am not amazing and I'm, like, you know, a, a product of some not amazing stuff? Honestly, Aurora, I'm just turning that corner. Like I'm just turning that corner where I'm I'm have little glimmers of I'm amazing. <laughs> like I'm fine. I'm good. Because I was so attached to being a beloved leader and what people thought of me or how they saw me and that was driving me versus being just no I know that's ironic based on the way I grew up too, but being just so comfortable in myself and knowing that I'm doing the right thing and I'm a good person and yes, I'm going to mess up and, but it doesn't make me a bad person. Can I ask you one question, Sadie? It sounds like you're still going through like a lot of self-discovery as we all are. And I'm wondering like now at 47 years old, are you kind of just maybe even starting to implement some of the lessons that you have been teaching at bar three? for a really long time? I think it's just a practice of remembering and forgetting. I started with this practice that's based on honoring your truth, looking inside for answers, being your authentic self, um, failing forward. Um, You know, it's the sand and the oyster that makes the pearl live into the dark moments. Like, I know all that. I always have. And 11 years ago when I started Bar 3, that's the tenets of Bar 3. But then I'll forget. And then I'll remember again. And then I'll forget. And then I'll remember. And I think I've just come to this point where that's life. You know, you just, you have those days where you're remembering and you're practicing and you're showing up and you're conscious. And then you'll have a day where you're sort of like unconscious and you kind of falter and you fall and you sort of go down that dark path again. And then you come back up and then you go back down. And I think that's, I've just sort of surrendered to that at this point. Yeah. Mm, Reflecting on your own origin story, what do you think? that you've learned about yourself? Well, I've learned that I'm fiercely loyal um, and that I consider women supporting women sacred. And when that's broken, it it, it hurts um, because I really believe that women supporting women, if we can all learn to do that in a really productive, powerful way, 
that we can overcome a conditioned world where women are pushed down. Um, and it's just I've learned that about myself, that it's not just who I am. It's what I want to be and how I want to live my life. And um, I, that all starts from my origins. Aww. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You um, obviously have a really incredible story, and I think that, you know, I've learned a lot, and I think a lot of other people have learned a lot, and I'm honestly going to text you from an X-Bar 3 class, and I'm going to tell you exactly what went down. (laughs) I can't wait to hear. I love hearing your experience from Bar (laughs) 3. Thank you so much, Sadie. Thank you, Aurora. Okay, this is it for the final episode of this season of In Progress. Thank you so much to our friends and partners over at Toomey. Shout out to them for supporting great podcasts like this one. And if you haven't checked out their stuff, what are you waiting for? Go do it. I'm sure you'll find something you like. And of course, thanks to Girlboss and the Girlboss Radio Network for making all of this possible. I've learned so, so much during these conversations with all of our amazing guests. Thank you to Melanie Elturk, Anina Bing, Patty Rodriguez, Beat Simkin, Tiffany Aliche, and Sadie Lincoln for coming on the podcast and sharing your truly incredible and inspiring and unique origin stories and unpacking with us exactly how those stories brought you to where you are now. Your journeys have all been incredible. As we've mentioned in the show, we are all a big work in progress in this giant experiment called life. But we make progress when we take the time to reflect on where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And if you've loved the show, be sure to rate and review the show. And if you've already done that, there's one more thing I need you to do. Please share the show with five of your friends. Share it with your coworkers, your family, your bestie, your partner. We want to keep these conversations going and we want to reach as many people as possible. Now, more than ever, it is important that we all revisit our origin stories so we can understand each other's journeys and how those journeys shape who we are. I think that's it for me. You can keep up with me on Instagram. It's pretty easy to find me. I'm at Aurora James. And you can follow Brother Velli's at Brother Vellies. That's V-E-L-L-I-E-S for Vellies. And let's not forget Toomey. You can follow them at Toomey Travel. And Girl Boss, if you're not following them, what are you doing with your life? Okay, I think I have to wrap up now. I love you. Bye. <laughs>